CES Wednesday. We have so many cool, diverse people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different upbringings, and it just keeps growing. I feel it in my I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a hustler. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm the queen of the tribe. I am playing whatever role I gotta play. I'm gonna play this game for speed. I ain't going down like no punk. A new Survivor, Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, amazingly, we are already into April, uh, which of course means that we have passed... April 1st, uh, you will be probably a little bit unsurprised to learn that I'm not much of an April Fool's kind of guy. Uh, how about you? Did you uh, play or were you a victim of any April Fool's pranks? So you're, you're playing kind of dumb there, but I know that you nope, know. That's what you I know, do best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no comment on that. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you know the answer to this question because you are a Facebook friend of mine. So you saw my Facebook uh, post about this. Uh, I, I am typically not a big prankster uh but a light bulb went off over my head early thursday morning to play a quick april fool's prank on my son uh not thinking for a second that he'd believe it figuring we'd just get a quick (laughs) chuckle out of it Uh, it was the first day of his spring break on thursday uh at about eight o'clock he was awake in bed playing around on the ipad so i busted into his room in faux panic and told him his teacher just emailed their school today after all he needs to hurry up and get dressed and like i couldn't contain my smile the corners of my mouth were definitely creeping upward i'm not a great liar he should have known i was full of crap but for whatever reason he didn't pick up on my tells and his eyes bugged out in panic and then he buried his head in his pillow and started crying. <laughs> At which point I gave up the joke very quickly. April Fool's, buddy. I'm just kidding. April Fool's. Uh, but he did not find it funny. He was still curled up in a ball for a couple of minutes, struggling to recover from apparently the worst news imaginable. Uh, now, someday he'll look back with a laugh, I think, and, and appreciate a great April Fool's joke by his dad. But <laughs> he hasn't forgiven me so far. Well, as somebody who, like, 40 years later still has recurring nightmares of being in school, I, I, I'm, with, I'm with him. Yeah. And what I underestimated, but besides him just completely forgetting it was April 1st, uh, is how much he likes structure and order and being able to plan for things. Uh, that's, that's who he is, and, and that's part of why he took it so hard. He had a day of lazily slacking off planned, and this was a sudden 180 on everything he was expecting to do that day. But also, he's a kid, and it's school, and maybe it's as simple as that. Right, right. What I'm more disturbed by is the notion that you're a very bad liar and you have all these tells. Aren't you supposed to be some kind of poker expert or something? <laughs> or is that just another extra super bluff that you're throwing in? That's there? right. That's right. It's all okay. part of the long game that I'm playing. Okay. Here. Good work. Good work. <laughs> all right. It is fight week on Showtime. There is a Showtime Championship Boxing triple header on Saturday, April 10th, headlined by Jaron Boots Ennis against Sergei Lipinets. So a good chunk of this week's show will be devoted to breaking down that card from all angles, including welcoming former Ring Magazine editor-in-chief Nigel Collins, who recently spent a day at the gym in Philadelphia with Boots and his family, and he'll be sharing his insights with us. Uh, we also have a few fights to review, some news to cover. Eric will pick the tweet of the week, and I will 
countdown, the all-time top five off-the-canvas moments. Uh, but let's start with that three-fight card that's just a few days away on Showtime, featuring maybe the best young fighter and maybe the best division in all of boxing, Boots Ennis stepping up to face his first top 10 welterweight opponent. Yeah, among the six fighters on this card from the Fight Sphere at Mohegan Sun, beginning at 9 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, three are making their Showtime debuts, uh, but Ennis isn't one of them. This is his seventh fight on Showtime, but it's his first Showtime Championship Boxing main event. And as Kieran just noted, Lipinets is his first true top 10 opponent, uh, ranked 10th by ESPN.com and 9th by both TBRB and The Ring, ahead of Boots based on accomplishment in all three rankings. Uh, Lipinets, uh, trained by the great Joe Goosen, is 16-1-1 with 12 KOs. He's beaten the likes of Lamont Peterson. His only loss came three years ago against Mikey Garcia at 140 pounds. And the one draw on his record came in his last fight against Custio Clayton last October. I scored that fight a draw myself, uh, but a Twitter poll by Showtime afterward ran 70-30 in Clayton's favor as uh, Lipinets faded down the stretch and arguably got a little lucky to escape without a loss. For what it's worth, Lipinets' manager, Alex Vasefield, says Sergey injured his hamstring early in that fight. Uh, Ennis, meanwhile, is just 23 years old, sports a record of 26-0, 24 KOs, and saw a 13-fight KO streak end in his last bout, a disappointing no decision versus Chris Van Eerden due to a nasty first-round clash of heads. Ennis has never been past six rounds, arguably never lost a single round, has scored 16 knockdowns in his last eight fights, but he's up against an opponent who has only been knocked down once and never been stopped. So... The simple question here, Kieran, how stiff a test can Lipinets offer? Can he win a round? Can he last past six? Can he force Ennis to dig deeper than he's had to yet? So the answer to all three is yes, he can, although that doesn't necessarily mean that he will, of course. I mean, of the three there, I think he's the most likely is that he's going to be able to force Ennis to dig deeper than he has before, not least because through absolutely no fault of his own, Ennis to this point hasn't had to dig particularly deep. Um, He's generally been, you know, as you've noted, vastly superior to everyone he's faced. I don't think there's really any question based on what we'd seen already that had it not been for that head clash, he was well on his way to doing the same to Chris Van Heerden as Mm. well. Um, Van Heerden was brought in to provide experience and force Ennis to go rounds. Uh, Obviously, that didn't go according to plan, uh, and I don't think he he looked like he was going to do that anyway. Lipinets, I think, is much more likely to. Um, He hasn't been an easy out for anyone. Uh, That fight with Lamont Peterson was just furious, vicious, violent fight of the year stuff. Um, He ended up dishing out such a beating in the end that Peterson retired. And, and afterward and stayed retired. Like you said, that one loss is, is to Mikey Garcia. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a total blowout. Um, he was actually reasonably competitive over the first half of that fight until Garcia dropped him in the seventh and then sort of went up another gear down the back half of the contest. Um, Lipinets is someone who can provide a bunch of different looks. You know, you, you could make the case that his best punch is arguably his, his jab, but he is also someone who can get right into your chest and work you over and drag you into a brawl, which is, of course, just what he did to Peterson. And as you said, of course, he has Joe Goosen in his corner. Um, all of that said, he's 32 years old. He's at an immense height and reach disadvantage, almost certainly a massive disadvantage in hand and foot speed as well. Mm-hmm. That most recent outing that you mentioned, the Custio Clayton one, it's a bit concerning. And as you mentioned in that fight, and it was the same with the Garcia fight, he does sometimes show a tendency to fade late. 
Um, so, yeah, he very well may force Ennis to dig deep. He may well go past six. He might even win a round or two, but none of that means he will win the fight. Um, you know, often when we're sort of looking at these these kind of matchups, you know, we, we go and we see if the stats give us any kind of information at all. And our friends at CompuBox, of course, always provide detailed fight breakdowns for us. Um, and the notes on this fight are interesting, especially because they include some really eye-popping stats on Ennis's accuracy. Um, you've looked at them as well, of course. And so, I mean, what kind of numbers stand out to you? And how do you expect them to translate to this particular matchup against Lipinets? Well, before I start gushing over the numbers, let's acknowledge that the quality of opposition hasn't been great so far. He's been eating a prospect's diet, essentially, but 48% of his power punches have landed. That's the one that really jumped out at me. He has the second best plus minus, which is your connect percentage versus your opponent's connect percentage of any active fighter CompuBox has tracked behind only Vasily Lomachenko. Uh, meanwhile, Lipinets's opponents have landed 38.4% of their power punches, which isn't outrageously high. The welterweight average is just a little below that at 36.8%, but it's high enough <laughs> against Ennis to be worrying. Uh, and Lipinets's manager, uh, Alex Vasefield, said, Sergey will be in Ennis's chest. He's not going to box him. I get that strategy. Um, mm-hmm. you, you'd think Lipinets can't win a boxing match uh, against a guy with Ennis's speed, but that strategy does mean he's going to eat a lot of leather. Yep. Uh, interestingly, you mentioned Lipinets's jab and what a good weapon it is, maybe his best weapon. He's had much better success with the jab than Ennis has. Lipinets lands six jabs per round, Ennis only 2.6, but... Ennis has a seven inch reach advantage, 74 inches to 67 inches. So it is an uphill battle for Lipinets from the outside, you would think. Um, I, I think that's the most interesting aspect of this matchup yep. to watch is just will Lipinets use the jab? And if he does, will he land it? E- even though it's perhaps his best weapon, the, the style matchup, especially if Ennis is in the southpaw stance and makes it hard for a righty to land the jab. That Lipinets weapon could be a non-factor here. Um, and one other CompuBox note, expect some ribs to get rattled in this one. Uh, 32.2% of Ennis's landed punches are to the body, and Lipinets's number is even higher, 34.5%. So, again, th- this could be an inside fight and a rumble of sorts. It could be fan-friendly. Uh, the question, coming back to what you were just commenting on, the question is just whether it can be competitive and, and contain any real drama. Yeah. So you teased at the top that welterweight is maybe the best division in boxing. Uh, And when Nigel joins us, we'll ask him where he sees boots fitting in. I would say welterweight is indeed the most talent-packed and deepest division going. But in terms of being loaded at the very top, super flyweight, 115 pounds, isn't far behind. And that's where Saturday's co-feature takes us. We have Jerwin Ancajas of the Philippines, 32-1-2, 22 knockouts, fighting for the first time in 16 months when he meets Jonathan Javier Rodriguez of Mexico, who's 22-1 with 16 KOs. Ancajas has eight straight alphabet title defenses at 115 pounds, but he's on the outside looking in when it comes to the round robin we've discussed featuring Chocolatito, Estrada, Strisaket, and Quadras. So, Kieran, what can you tell us about Ancajas and Rodriguez? And is there anything Ancajas can do in this fight to insert himself into the conversation with those bigger names at Super Flyweight? 
so yeah, so Anka has is very much the A side here. Um, you know, he's someone who's been showing promise and, and threatening to break into that top tier for several years now. Um, obviously, as with so many other folks over the last year, year and a half, and then a little bit more, COVID and various other issues haven't helped. He had some visa issues as well back in 2019. Um, all of that, all of that has, as you mentioned, sort of interrupted his momentum a bit because he's been out of the ring for 16 months. But you know, as you also mentioned, he's he's made eight defenses of that alphabet belt of his, which he won back in 2016. And I think I think it was either in 2017 or perhaps 2018. I remember having a conversation with about him with uh, Sean Gibbons, his his manager, you know, now promoter, and because um, he was starting to make some waves then. And I, and I asked asked him about him, and and Sean told me then that he figured Anker has needed a little bit more seasoning, maybe a couple more years before he'd be ready for, say, HBO exposure. Uh, well, he's outlasted HBO. <laughs> right. um, but on that Gibbons timescale, if you remove the 16-month layoff, he's probably just about on that schedule now to, to make that step up. Um, you know, his one blemish during his time uh, as a title holder was a split draw against uh, Alejandro Santiago in September 2018 which was one of those fights that had wildly divergent scorecards. Uh, one judge had it 116-112 for Ancajas, one had it 118-111 for Santiago, and the third one down the middle. But this was one of those fights that, as we talked about with the Chocolatito Estrada scorecards, showed how very close rounds can lead to weird cards, because according to CompuBox, nine of the 12 rounds were separated by just three connects or less. It was just one of those fights. Um, but apart from that, he's generally been able to take care of his opposition. Uh, he's a southpaw, he's an aggressive fighter. He's going to come and knock you out. But to get to your question, it is going to take him a while before he gets that opportunity to face Srisaketsu or Rongvisai, which is apparently his number one choice of, of that big four. Um, because as we talked about over the last couple of weeks, it appears that those four are going to be busy with each other for a while, probably mm. through at least this year. Best he can do is not just keep winning, but keep winning well. Um, look impressive. Um, make sure that people know he's there, that he's knocking on that door, that he's ready to take his opportunity when those four have sort of finished with each other. Um, you know, and I think he'll he'll come into this probably reasonably confident of his ability to do that against uh, uh, Rodriguez. Uh, the interesting thing, by the way, about Rodriguez, as you mentioned, he's 22 and one. So far, every one of his fights has been in Mexico against a fellow Mexican. You know, as anyone who spent any time paying attention to the sport knows that and sometimes when you look at a fighter and you're like yeah he's 22 and one but he hasn't left his country yet or he hasn't fought anyone except his fellow countrymen you know that's maybe a big deal if you're from like luxembourg but <laughs> you know there's a lot of difference if you're playing your trade in mexico city and tijuana uh, against your fellow countrymen that that doesn't necessarily that shouldn't necessarily mean a black mark at all all of that said um, his quality of the opposition on paper hasn't been great, Rodriguez. Uh, of his most recent opponents, uh, Julian Yedras had lost his previous six. Luis Enrique Delgado had lost his previous five. Emmanuel Zuniga had lost his previous 13. Um, so why on earth, then, is he getting a crack at this title? Well, it's because of one particular fight. Um, his last fight but one against Felipe Orcuta. Um, Orcuta had gone the distance with Juan Francisco Estrada, but Rodriguez beat him up and knocked him out in the 10th round of a fight that actually saw Okuta taken a hospital and undergo successful surgery. Um, but that one fight aside, this is a pretty big step up in class for the Mexican. Um, the opening bout 
on the televised card uh, returns us to that loaded welterweight division that Ennis and Lippinets call home. And like the main event, it's a matchup of an undefeated prospect and a veteran contender. Uh, Emantis Stanionis of Lithuania is 12-0 with nine KOs. He's 26 years old, a 2016 Olympian. He meets Thomas Dulorme of Puerto Rico, who's 25-4-1 with 16 KOs, a name we know very well. Still a stiff test for almost anyone, but he's definitely in the opponent stage of his career, having gone 1-2-1 and in his last four. Um, again, represents on paper a step up for Stanionis. Uh, Dulorme has been 10 or more rounds eight times. And Stanionis has never gone 10. Eric, what can you tell us about Delorme's recent form? And is Stanionis talented enough to possibly join Ennis and Virgil Ortiz as a top young gun at 147? So on Delorme and his recent form, despite winning just one of his last four fights, I don't really see signs that he's on the decline. I, I mm. think he's just as good physically now as he was in 2015, when he actually won a couple of rounds against Terrence Crawford en route to getting stopped in round six, um, he's faced consistently good opposition his last four fights and lost some close ones. He, he lost to your Dennis Ugas, but if not for two point deductions later in the fight yep. for low blows, he would have won a split decision. Uh, he got a draw against Jesse Vargas, and Jesse Vargas is widely regarded as a top 10 welterweight contender. So Delorme is, is right on his level. He defeated Terrell Williams, who was 18-0 at the time, and he lost a close unanimous decision to Jamal James, also a legit top 10 guy in the tough welterweight division. So, bottom line, Delorme is the toughest test of Stenionis's career. Uh, to this point, Justin Deloach is his best opponent. Uh, but yeah, that changes on Saturday night. This is definitely his best opponent. So, how talented is Stenionis? He has a great jab. Um, he set at least one CompuBox record with it already. There's nothing fancy about his style. You know, tight guard, coming forward behind the jab. He's both a boxer and a pressure fighter at the same time. He throws a lot of body shots, but it's all fairly straightforward. Um, look, it's kind of an unfair question asking how he stacks up against Ennis and Ortiz. Uh, right. Based on what we've seen so far, I don't think Stanionis is quite on that level. But he's still very much a prospect to watch and would be the best prospect in most other divisions. Uh, he has good pedigree, 2016 Olympian, trained by Marvin Simodio, previously trained by Freddie Roach. He has all the tools. He just doesn't scream future pound-for-pounder like Boots and Virgil Ortiz do. But if he gets by Delorme, which is not guaranteed, but if he does, then he establishes himself as yet another player in this loaded welterweight division. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown, new season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount Plus. From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Ha! Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount Plus. Yes! Yeah, indeed. All right. Our guest this week spent a day in camp in Philadelphia with Jerron Boots Ennis earlier this year, and the resulting article is in the latest edition of Boxing News Magazine. He is the former two-time editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine, and is a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. He is, of course, the one 
and only Nigel Collins. Nigel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's always fun to talk boxing with guys like you. Well, we'll, we'll see if you're still saying that at the end of the <laughs> conversation. Right. But <laughs> um, So your your article on, on boots uh, in Boxing News that Kieran mentioned, it offered a revealing look at the whole NS fighting family. Um, I couldn't tell, though, if you got much of a sense of boots as a person. You know, we've had him on the podcast He's a perfectly nice and intelligent young man, but he's not a big talker. What What are your impressions of him as a person? Do you feel like you got to know him at all in, in a few hours spent together in the gym? Not real well. Um, he's what I would say kind of shy, mm-hmm. and it was hard to get a lot out of him. I got a couple of good quotes, but uh, Bozy's the alpha male, <laughs> you know, his father, right? And he like dominates any room that he's in. Not in a bad way, but that's just his personality. But I I went back to the same gym, um, oh, fairly recently to interview uh, cool boy Steph Fulton. Right. um, Who has a title and uh, trains at the same gym. And during our conversation, um, I said, you know, I I couldn't get too much out of him. He he wasn't much of a talker. Uh, He just sort of smiled and said, you just got to get to know him better. Mm -hmm. So... Maybe with the media, he's a little shy, but, you know, uh, I I couldn't really uh, say, but I think that's kind of what Steph was telling me. Right. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, Bozy. I I mean, I'm kind of thinking that maybe Boots is one of those guys who could benefit from having his family around him to do some of the talking for him so he can just focus on the fighting. I mean, Bozy is no Angel Garcia, which is probably a good thing, uh, but do you think maybe he's a case where his dad can kind of, and maybe his brothers can carry some of that trash-talking load for him? I think, you know, the brothers are different because um, a lot of people don't realize that uh, Pooh is 17 years older than Boots, oh, right. and Farah is 14 years older. So he was like, uh, well, there's a name for the babies that come along when you don't expect them <laughs> late in life. Uh, <laughs> a- accident, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. But I mean, you know, um, being the younger brother by that many years, it's not a couple of years, um, you know, sometimes has something to do with your personality, especially if they're a little more boisterous than them. But when it comes to confidence, Boy, does he have it. Hmm. Um, Now, of course, that's true with a lot of unbeaten prospects. And, you know, everybody thinks they're going to be the champ. But uh, there there is a kind of, you know, vocal confidence, um, if not much else. Right. I'm 13 years younger than my brother, which is why I'm so quiet and adorable myself. (laughs) Oh, that's the rebound effect. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, So you quoted uh, Steve Farhood in your story saying Boots is, quote, the the total package. And and several months ago, Mm -hmm. um, Breadman Edwards was on our podcast and he gushed similarly about Ennis's talent. You know, he said that he's a potential future pound for pound number one as long as he can take a punch. Um, You've seen so many prospects come and go over the years. So what are your thoughts on him as a fighter based on what you've seen so far? Do you have those same high hopes for him as as Steve and Breadman do? Yes, I mean, the thing is, obviously, uh, he hasn't fought the kind of opponent that would uh, bring out the worst of it, if, if that was, you know, the right way to say it. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you're undefeated, that's just one thing. But if you have the physical 
equipment and the mental mindset the boots has, it's a lot more likely that you're right, that you are going to be something special. It hasn't mm. been proven yet. I mean, if you watched him box, right? Yeah. He, he changes from orthodox to southpaw so smoothly and so quickly. You don't even see it's happening. Right, and right. Um, his style, he's very versatile in his style. He's very tall for his uh, weight division. He's got long legs. He's very, very quick. Uh, punches hard. Uh, yeah, he seems to be the total package. I couldn't agree with Steve uh, anymore, but uh, obviously the acid test hasn't come yet. Right. Um, so, yeah, you, you talk about how we, we need to see him tested to, to learn more. And we, we've talked on the podcast about prospects like Brandon Lee wanting to get rounds in and, and it just isn't happening. And of course, there's the top ranked prospect, Edgar Berlanga, who's end, ending every fight in the first round. Uh, how concerned are you about these guys not getting tested, not going more than a couple of rounds? And, and do you think that Sergey Lipinets can push Boots Ennis and, and possibly last the distance against him. Well, uh, Lipinets is a tough guy. Mm-hmm. He's got that bent nose, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, he can punch a little bit. And, and uh, losing to Mikey Garcia over the distance, it doesn't uh, disqualify him from being a good fighter. Mm-hmm. But he's smaller. Mm-hmm. I don't think he is as naturally gifted physically. Um, so I think it's a good step up at this point a fringe contender rather than a guy that's in everybody's top 10. He's in some mm-hmm. of them. Um, I think this is the right step, but um, it's going to have to keep going. I, I don't think that Sergei Lipinets is going to be the first guy to beat him. I don't think he's going to be the first guy to give him a tough time, but I'm, I'm you know, that second part, uh, you never know. Mm. Um, sort of going back to, to, to Bredman and that very high opinion he had of boots. He also said based on talent, not necessarily on, on resume, but based on talent, there isn't a fighter that he would confidently pick to beat Ennis right now at welterweight. And that's a division with Terence Crawford and Errol Spence, among others. Where do you at the moment, and maybe this is a question that we need to wait until he sees what he does with Lippinets to be able to answer, but right now, where do you see him fitting in with the elite guys? You know, maybe either now or maybe a year or so down the road when he's had more of these kind of tougher fights. I don't think there's any reason to rush him from uh, mm. Sergey Lipinets to one of the guys you just mentioned. Mm. I think that um, he needs to be brought along gradually. And as you said before, you know, you're going to see stuff maybe in the Sergey Lipinets fight or maybe then one after that that will give you a, a greater understanding of where he is. But, you know, he's, his style, uh, besides his physical gifts, is, is very spontaneous. Um, you never know quite what he's going to do. And that quote he gave about, you know, how he can fight all these different styles. That's true as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, he's versatile and, um, fearless. He sometimes takes some risks that perhaps he shouldn't, but I always think that's possibly the sign of a great fighter. Mm. Uh, you know, willing to challenge yourself, uh, when you don't really have to, to win the fight. Or, you know, uh, or hopefully going forward when you're in a tough fight. So I, I, um, I can't think of anything negative to say about him, either as a person or a fighter. I'm really looking forward to the, the fight on the 10th. And um, 
he also seems to be in a good place in his mind, you know, not not just a good place in his boxing mind. Mm. He seems seems to be a pretty mellow guy. Uh, you know, uh, did did you guys ever talk to uh, Stephen Fulton? Yeah, we had him on a, a few months ago. Yeah, when he won the time, he's right. a chatterbox. He has a <laughs> yeah. totally different personality. Very friendly. He has a really nice voice too, and um, you know, so within the same gym, these guys are friends. They work together. They're pretty much opposites as far as personality goes. Um, and I guess you know. Uh, if you got a guy like Boots as the father, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you don't want to say too much. I, I I don't really know, but I liked I liked I liked the Bozy a lot. Um, he didn't seem to be the uh, Angel Garcia type at all. He wasn't right. cursing anybody. <laughs> he wasn't being mean and nasty. He just likes to talk, and he knows what he's talking about. And he still spars. Uh, I, I think it was a, uh, a Showtime promo spot that you guys did where they showed him taking some of his boxers to this like vacant lot in the Badlands where they used, uh, you know, pushover tires, chop wood. Did you see that? Yeah, I think I know what you're talking, okay. talking about. Yeah. But there was a great part of it where they have a rope tied to the top of it's either two, two or three story building. And he wants the fighters by holding on the rope and putting your feet against the building like you would on a mountain and climb the rope. And here this 65-year-old guy jumps out there and says, this is how you do it, boys, and, and you know, goes up to the top. And, and it's just basically not bragging. It's showing them, hey, if I can do it, you guys can do it. Right. right. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean um, – I found I found uh, Pooh a very uh, pleasant guy. Um, you know, he wasn't a, a great talker, but he was willing to talk, and, and he, he's uh, he didn't do too bad as a fighter. You know, right. he uh, he had some decent fights, but uh, you know, I, this this is the star of the family. This this is the ultimate uh, of of uh, Bosey's creations, right. and. Um, I think, you know, I think I mentioned in the story, he's probably the last chance that the family has to get into the big time. Right. Well, well speaking of uh, both Ennis and Fulton and this this new generation of, of Philly fighters coming up, I mean, you've been a, a Philly-based boxing writer for some 50 years or so. Um, I think we can agree that the last great Philly fighter was Bernard Hopkins, uh, although Danny Garcia came along and uh, I think qualifies as a very good Philly fighter. But, you know, with, with Ennis and, and Fulton, does it feel like we might be entering a, a Philly boxing renaissance? Will we ever see one of them headlining a major fight card at the Wells Fargo Center or something like that? Well, it, it's, uh, you know, it's um, going out on the limb to say this. Let me just go back a little bit mm-hmm. um, because you say that, you know, I, I should have be able to judge a fighter by now. <laughs> there, there, were, there were, there were three fighters um, that um, I recognized right away as uh, somebody that was going to be special. Uh, one, one of them was Tyrone Everett. Uh, the other two were Matthew Franklin and Jeff Chandler. Tyrone got blown away, but uh, you know, Matthew Shabbat and Jeff Chandler are in the Hall of Fame now. Mm-hmm. I don't have quite the same feeling about uh, Boots, and I think that's probably because 
I don't have a large enough sample. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I could probably say that if he keeps doing well, uh, because there are things about him that are not, you know, things that the average fighter goes. Take Hopkins. Mm-hmm. It took him a long time to get where he was going. No, he probably made the most money after he was past his prime. And uh, he was a, a zealot like none other that I've ever come across for uh, looking after his body and uh, looking after his money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so he, he was uh, definitely a, a unique fighter. And uh, I, I cannot... Um, say that right now i think that boots ennis is going to be the next uh, bernard hopkins right. um but uh i th- i think that he's like you know he's on the list of the ones that just might right um mm. i was very impressed but uh when you're bringing up names like that it's you know it's it's a little bit too soon i believe gotcha gotcha you know sort of staying with the philly fighter theme there's this fairly or unfairly there's this sort of image of what constitutes a typical philly fighter right but stylistically you look at boots he's you're not going to think of smoking joe frazier when you when you watch boots fight but how well or poorly do you think he fits that mold of the stereotypical philly fighter well there is no stereotypical philly fighter um, that that is like a false. That's a myth. But because of Joe Frazier, guys like Benny mm-hmm. Bristow, a lot of guys that were extremely aggressive knockout punchers. But then we had Harold Johnson, who was mm-hmm. a beautiful craftsman. Uh, you know, Tyron Everett. I just mentioned he was the last thing but a slugger. And you know, uh, Tyron Everett drew huge crowds in Philadelphia. So it is. It, it's sort of mm-hmm. a, a myth that they all fight the same. But the one thing that is true throughout them, that they're, mother, they're tough guys <laughs> and uh, they're not going to give up. Even, even the club fighters uh, are tough guys that try to win. And I, I think it's the toughness and the pride of the Philly fighters that they share in common, not their styles. Gotcha. Yeah. So you mentioned your all-time favorite Philly fighter there, and he, maybe he's your all-time favorite fighter, period. Uh, B- bad Benny Briscoe. Uh, for, for those listeners too young to have lived through Benny's career, uh, like me, for example, uh, what, what made him so special? Why was he your favorite? Well, when I first started seeing Benny Briscoe before I was in the business, I was paying to see fights early in his career. When you went to see the fights, your question always was, is this guy even going to give him a good fight? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had a very long career and he had a very slow fade where he, when he was best his prime, he was beating guys like Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. So mm-hmm. Benny was a little bit unique, but what made him popular was several things. Number one, he was totally uncompromising. Uh, and it said of him, although of course it's not true. He never took a backward step. It should be seldom, but that's true. <laughs> right. um, he, he was as tough as hell. He could take a punch. Um, I knew Benny very well. And um, his, I asked him once, how do you train? What do you do when you're training for a fighter? And he said, uh, I get in shape and try to stop the guy. You know, <laughs> that's, that's Philly right there. Right. And I'm not going to move around and jab, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to train, get in shape, and try to stop the guy. That was always his plan. 
And um, he never, well, this was his phrase, he never went Hollywood. He hung on the same corners with the same corner boys that he'd always done throughout his life when he was headlining Spectrum and fighting all over the world. You could go find him on that corner. Now, he wasn't boozing it up and doing drugs like those guys, but they were still his friends. Hmm. And that's, that's something special, you know? Um, and also, they, that, that was a long time ago when I don't think Benny was ever in a gang. But those were the days when the gang settled their differences with fists. Mm-hmm. And the boxers uh, who were in bad neighborhoods and didn't want to join gangs were respected and left alone. Yeah. Um, he, it's, he had a certain weird charisma, uh, an unusual charisma, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe Fraser had a tough guy charisma, and so did Benny. But he had these other things, his personality. He did funny things. Joe Frazier was a grumpy SOB. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Benny was always happy. Um, you knew if Benny Briscoe was on the card, somebody was going to get hurt. It was going to be a real fight. And that's that all plays into this image of Philly as a tough town. He was, he was tough. Um, you know, uh, he, he, I don't know how he kept going as long as he did, uh, but what uh, the big thing was is when Georgie Benton started to train him. Um, mm. Georgie had actually been stopped by Benny uh, a few years before he retired, mm. but um, a lot of Benny's trainers thought he was stupid and couldn't train, which, which was just in their minds. Mm. Georgie Benton helped his balance and showed him how great his jab was. He could be. He could knock you down with a jab. In fact, it was somewhat of a uh, disadvantage because if he hit you with a jab, he probably knocked you so far back you couldn't follow up with the right hand. <laughs> right. So I could go on all day with this nonsense, but uh, maybe just from the just for the tone of my voice, you can understand yeah. why he was popular. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, he was one of the many top Philly middleweights of the 70s who fought Marvin Hagler. And and for obvious reasons, we've been talking a lot about Marvelous Marvin on the podcast lately. And, and I'm curious to sort of finish up whether you were at some of those fights that Marvin had in Philly in the 70s when he was on the way up. And if so, did you know back then that he was going to be special? Well, I was at all of them, of course. Um, yes, it did. Uh, but I think Marvin got better after that period. Of, of you know when he was coming, he was he was damn good then. Uh, Willie Warren Monroe is the only guy that Marvin would say legitimately beat him, mm. and it was true. I was I was I was at the fight. Uh, at one point, uh, Willie the Worm knocked his mouthpiece off. It bounced off the canvas and fell practically in my lap. Mm. Uh, but of course, the rematches. Uh, he was. The Willie Worm was stopped twice. Uh, Bobby Watts got a gift decision. That was a stinkeroo. Um, <laughs> by the time he got around to fighting Briscoe, which was sometime after that, uh, Benny was really in decline by that point. But they still drew the largest indoor crowd for boxing in Philadelphia history. Hmm. 14,930 people paid to get in. 
And um, that was just because it was Benny uh, fighting somebody they knew. But um, I'll say this. Hagler won the, uh, the decision fair and square by a wide margin. But it was the only fight I ever saw when Marvin Hagler was backing up most of the time. Wow. Wow. So that now you know nobody wants to trade with Benny Briscoe. Wow! Because <laughs> you might not be the same again. He had a lot of uh, rematches where he beat guys that had beat him early, mm. and that was probably because they weren't they weren't the same after the fight they won. Wow. Right. Nigel, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, your article on Boots is in Boxing News Magazine if people want to check it out before the fight. And uh, we look forward to seeing where Boots goes from, from here. And in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. All right. It was great talking to you guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, Thanks Nigel. Nigel. Ah, great stuff there with Nigel. Thanks again to him for joining us. Uh, let's make our official predictions for Saturday's card. Uh, I'm leading 18 to 15 in our competition, and let's work our way up the card, starting with Stenyonis versus Delorme. And you're up first, Kieran. Yeah, the, the notes that I've made here about Delorme were so similar to to what you'd said about him. It's like, uh, you know, how do you different ways to describe him? Whether it's nearly man. Close but no cigar. I mean, however you describe it, he's he's a guy who's had a good career that has, on so many different points, been awfully close to being that little bit better. Like you said, um, he he could slash would have beaten or Dennis Ugas, but for those point deductions, he came up short against Terence Crawford. No shame in that. Um, and, and then you mentioned the fights with Vargas and Jamal James, but. Yeah, it's just tough, but the figures sort of don't really lie over the course of a career. And and yeah, after starting 22-1, and one, he is just 3-3-1 three, three and one since he's kind of like gone up against that better opposition. He has only won once since April 2017. It's it's tough, but there are you, – you come across in boxing these guys who fight just well enough to be very competitive mm-hmm. and just don't quite have what it takes – to you know to, to to get over the hump and it feels almost as if his moment is passing him by and once again now he's up against this very solid up-and-comer with with good amateur credentials strong work ethic good fundamentals and like you said a very very good cornerman in marvin samodio i don't think this is necessarily going to be the most exciting fight of the evening but it could be intriguing at spells there's an interesting little bit of a style clash here even so I do expect, like you said, Stenionis may not be the kind of guy to, to you know, make you rush to, to your TV set, but he is fundamentally really solid, really sound. He's one of these guys who just works away at you, beats you up behind that jab. And I do think that that's probably going to be the key here. He's got a good defense. He's nice and tight. I think he's going to start thudding that jab. And I think after a close an intriguing sort of first half of the fight. Gradually, that jab is going to take control. I wouldn't be surprised if he starts marking Delorme up a fair bit. Um, it won't be Delorme's most lopsided loss. Uh, it will go the distance, I think. But Delorme might look a little bit the worse for wear by the end of it. I think stay newness by unanimous decision. And once again, Delorme is going to be falling just that little bit short. Okay. Uh, yeah, th- this is one of those picks where... I know who I'm picking. I knew who I was picking from the start. I never quite wavered, but still an upset wouldn't really surprise me at all. Uh, Delorme is still really good. He can win rounds. He can hurt Stenyonis. 
if you're giving me like three to one odds on Delorme to win, I'm, I'm probably betting that he's at least that live of an underdog. But Stanionis is a little too talented and skilled for me to actually pick the upset. And Delorme's chin has long been a question mark. He's been stopped twice. He's been knocked down eight times in his career. So I see Stanionis having success with the jab and the body shots, but Delorme hanging right with him. I think it's a really good close fight. And then somewhere in the second half, Stanionis catches him and Delorme goes down and maybe gets up, but doesn't really recover. And it stopped not too long after. I'll say Stanionis KO9 with the, the fight about even on the cards at that point. Uh, so we have a little uh, variation there in, in our picks. Uh, opportunity for me to widen my lead or for you to catch up a little, but <laughs> you know, that's not realistic. Um, okay, uh, I am up first with a pick for Ancajas versus Rodriguez. And first, uh, a quick inconsequential note that uh, I don't know why this didn't occur to me before. Uh, maybe I'm Filipino profiling here, but uh, Ancajas, if you did one of those fancy computerized facial blends between Manny Pacquiao <laughs> and Luisito Espinoza, I think Ancajas's exact face comes out of the computer. You, you won't get this analysis anywhere else, Karen. And it's free. That's Absolutely free. Thing. Yep. Amazing. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the uh, X's and O's uh, here. I, I love uh, Ancajas's southpaw right hook. What a sneaky and effective punch. Uh, Rodriguez has faced three southpaws, but none of them are as good as Ancajas. I like what little video I've seen of Rodriguez. Seems a solid up-and-comer, but this is just such a big step up. Yeah. You mentioned Oracuda. Other than that, he's faced nobody of note at all. With the 16-month layoff, I could see Ancaz starting slowly, but I believe he'll take over before too long. And, you know, it's hard to predict a stoppage when we just don't really know what Rodriguez is made of, but I'll go ahead and predict it anyway. I'll say Ancaz KO8, too many weapons and too much experience, and it eventually overwhelms Rodriguez. Yeah, I think we might find out quite a lot about Rodriguez relatively early here as, you know, I think, you know, Ancajas, the likelihood is he, he's going to want to make a statement and I think he's probably going to come out and, and start putting the pressure on early and we'll see, you know, uh, whether Rodriguez has what it takes to sort of withstand that and, and fire back. Um, I think this might be a pretty interesting contest at times, actually. Um, but it does nonetheless feel as if after a short while that, that class will, will tell. You know, one interesting kind of thing is that this fight was originally supposed to happen in November 2019 and then April 2020. Both men have had plenty of opportunity to get to know the other and figure out their game plans. But I feel that's more likely to favor the more experienced Ancajas than the lesser known Rodriguez. Um, I, I do think, I think, I see this fight fairly similarly to you, I think. I think that after a, a decent start, you know, Rodriguez might start getting busted up a little in there. Uh, and I see this perhaps being a situation where after a while, Ancajas really has taken control of this. Rodriguez is getting hurt. Uh, I, instead of a clean knockout, I see this as being perhaps a corner or referee stoppage. Um, I, I see it very similarly to you. Just to be different, I have Ancajas winning by stoppage in round seven. But I think we see it as basically a very similar kind of fight. Yeah. All right. Which takes us to the main event. Um on the one hand, as we have discussed, this is conceivably a big, tough step up for Ennis, um, one that could push him to the brink, or at least force him to dig quite deep. But here's the thing. One of the oldest boxing adages remains one of the most accurate ones. Styles make fights. And you touched on this earlier. The style matchup here 
just isn't very good for Sergei Lipin yet. He's a boxer with a good jab against an opponent with a seven-inch reach advantage. He's a fighter who likes to get in close uh, in contrast and work against an opponent who's bigger than him, who's taller than him, who's stronger than him, who's faster than him. Yes, Lipinets does have experience, but really outside of those couple of bouts that we've mentioned, he hasn't necessarily faced anyone you'd really expect to give Ennis a particularly tough fight. Um, I could see a couple of scenarios here. Either Lipinets finds himself unable to get past like Ennis's fearing long punches and he gets picked apart on the outside, which is what you alluded to, or he is able to slip underneath and make it a firefight, make Ennis work hard um, until Ennis starts working him with uppercuts, forcing him back and punishing him. He said, I think to possibly win, Lipinets is going to have to take a lot of fire here. And as Nigel you know, pointed out, look, there's a reason Lipinets has a, a nose that's pointing at right angles, right? <laughs> right. And it's because he, he can be hit. And Ennis, I think, is going to hit him. Um, either of the scenarios, there's not a scenario that I can picture in which Lipinets wins this fight. Um, I, I just feel like on the one hand, I feel like this is a very good piece of matchmaking for Ennis's people. And that on the one hand, it's somebody who's got the experience, who's got the ability to push him, uh, to, to, to force him to answer questions he hasn't been asked before. But at the same time, stylistically, it's a very good fight for Ennis, I think. I think the more likely of the two scenarios is the latter, that, that Lipinets is going to do what his manager said he's going to do, that he's not going to try and stay outside, that he's going to try and slip underneath those long punches and get in there. Uh, and I think that that's going to make Ennis work hard. I think he, he might, even Lipinets, win a round or two uh, as he's doing that. But I don't think that Ennis is ever going to be in any real trouble. Lipinets is a good fighter, closing in on the end of his career. Ennis is a potentially great one in the early stages of his. I do think Lipinets may take Ennis past six, but not far past six. And I think by night's end, he may wish things had ended a bit earlier. I, I see Ennis cranking up the pressure as the fight goes on. This is going to be his big opportunity, Ennis, to show us what he's got. And I think he's going to impress us. I think he's going to probably end up dropping him maybe a couple of times with uppercuts. I see him finishing off Lipinets with a follow-up barrage in about the eighth. All right. Uh, I'll make this short and sweet. I'm aboard that Ennis train. Uh, what Breadman said several weeks ago, that's similar to what I was thinking, that as solid as Lipinets is, I'm not sure what he can really get done against Boots. I don't particularly expect him to win a single round, but I think he can go some rounds and, and test Boots's patience and discipline. You know, can he stay consistent even if the knockout isn't coming easily, which I don't think it will come easily here. Uh, but I think the answer is yes, he st can stay consistent and disciplined and he will get the stoppage. And uh, I'll be boring and not create any uh, possibility of swing here because uh, I have jotted down Boots Ennis forces a stoppage in round eight. I'm sticking with that. All right. Uh, all right. Let's take a quick look back at this past week's fights. Uh, three notable main events in various corners of the globe. In Australia, Tim Zhu remained undefeated by battering Dennis Hogan and stopping him in five and is now lining up a 154-pound title shot against Brian Castaño. In Uzbekistan, Murajan Akhmadaliyev also scored a fifth-round stoppage, this one in defense of his 122-pound belts against Japan's Ryosuke Iwasa, who was not a fan of the ref's decision to stop it <laughs> in round five. Uh, and in Dubai, Carl Frampton lasted one round longer before being stopped in the sixth round of his 130-pound challenge of Jamel Herring when his corner threw in the towel 
after Frampton had been down twice. Frampton was in tears afterward. He reminded me of my son after being told to get dressed for school. <laughs> uh, no, this was uh, more, I would say, an, an extremely choked up voice wavering yeah. sort of tears. Yeah. Uh, and Frampton announced, as expected, that he was retiring from the sport. Kieran, your thoughts on any or all of these? So Tennessee's gotten a lot of hype down under for entirely understandable reasons. Uh, but we're now starting to get a sense, I think, of just how legitimate he really is. Um, Hogan was a good win. Because we've seen him before, um, you know, in, in December 9, 2019, he got dropped a couple of times and stopped by Jamel Charlo. And earlier that year, he dropped a decision to Jaime Munguia that he arguably deserved to win. So we, we have an idea of where Hogan's level is on the world stage. And by taking care of him so comprehensively, I think Sue announced that he's definitely worthy of legit, you know, prospect slash contender status. Um you know, a while back, I, I mentioned him as a sort of left field money earning option for one of those 154 pound titleist slash challengers who are spinning their wheels looking for mm. someone to fight. That's starting to become an actually legitimately valid uh, option, I think. Um, Ahmed Aliyev looked excellent. I, I love Ahmed Aliyev. Uh, <laughs> I, I know I, you do. <laughs> I, I love his compactness, the short, straight, heavy punches, the footwork, the ring generalship, the fact that he always just looks relaxed to the point of almost being bored in there. I I, I love him as a fighter. I, I really do. Look, Awasa, as we discussed last week, was by no means a scrub. He's a former titleist, but he could barely lay a glove on him. Um, I think it also highlighted how good Danny Roman is, actually, mm -hmm. as he's the only one to have pushed Ahmed Aliyev at all. And... and, and you know, came very close to beating him. The stoppage, I agree with Awasa. That stoppage was absurd. Terrible timing. Yes, Awasa was going to lose. He was getting beat, um, and the result seemed a formality. But stranger things have happened. They weren't going to happen here. But <laughs> I, I thought as an ex-titleist, Awasa deserved a little bit more there, actually. It wasn't the most one-sided beatdown in a round that I've ever seen. But, you know, Ahmed Ali have looked like he was always going to win that fight. Um, and yes, look, Frampton making, I think, the right decision to retire. Uh, he was at more significant disadvantages in height and reach than I'd appreciated, actually, yeah. to be honest. I, I just hadn't quite grasped that big difference. But even so, he just didn't have the snap or the sharpness. He was, he was pushing those punches a bit. He was laboring a bit to get inside. He did have some success, of course. But once Herring started connecting with those uppercuts, it was really just, just a matter of time. It was a good stoppage, I thought, by the corner. It was well-timed. Um, it's always tremendously sad to see a very good fighter look so devastated at the realization his career is over. It's God, it's such a cruel sport at times. Mm -hmm. um, but as for Herring, look, he reestablished himself. There have been some questions that have been asked uh, uh, following the end to his bout with Jonathan Akendo. Uh, I think he deserves a ton of credit for his late career sort of peak. Um, he's a model professional. Uh, I think he would come up quite comfortably short against Oscar Valdez um, or even against Shakur Stevenson. But nonetheless, he, he deserves a lot of credit for what he's done with his career over the last several years at an age at which most people like Frampton are, are looking at the, uh, the finish line. Um, I got to say also, it was fantastic. It's a cruel sport, this, but it can be a, just an amazing one. It was terrific to see how kind and generous Herring and Frampton were to each other afterwards mm -hmm. and indeed their camps on Twitter afterwards their wives were tweeting back and forth <laughs> about getting together I don't know if you saw that I didn't you know no and and Frampton's wife inviting Herring's wife to come over to Belfast and go on a shopping trip leave the boys behind it's an amazing you can it's just remarkable to me how you can have two guys spend months 
building up to beating the snot out of each other, then beating the snot out of each other, and then they're the best friends afterwards. So uh, this was, in many respects, uh, what's cruelest and what's best about boxing all in one fight. Yeah, that's great stuff. Um, Yeah, all of these fights from the past week, uh, what stood out to me is how they each potentially set up other very interesting fights. I think Castaño versus Zoo, that could be outstanding. Um, Hopefully... Akhmedaliyev Roman 2 is coming. I really want to see that. And uh, yeah, I'm starting to fall for Akhmedaliyev a little bit myself. He's always, <laughs> he's yours first. I, I I respect that. But he's such a little stick of dynamite. Uh, I love watching him throw combinations. And he has a great power jab for a short fighter. Yes. Um, and then as far as Herring and his potential fights, uh, you mentioned Valdez, Shakur Stevenson. I wouldn't have thought either of those sounded too competitive as of a few days ago, but off this performance, I'm interested in either of those fights, actually. They seem legit to me. Herring showed great poise dealing with his cut uh, and really surprised me with his power. Um, That uppercut, Frampton Mm. collapsed in slow motion on that knockdown. Uh, Suddenly, I'm viewing Herring in a new light. I I see him now as a uh, a real solid opponent for any of the top guys at 130. Mm. Uh, apart from the Showtime card, there is one other significant fight to look ahead to next week. And like Frampton Herring, it's undergone a few delays. The light heavyweight clash between Joe Smith Jr. and Maxim Lasov. Uh, what are you expecting from that? And what can the winner look forward to uh, out of that fight? So based on recent form, Smith is the favorite here. But Vlasov is no soft touch. Uh, 45 wins, three losses. And those three losses came... 10 years ago against the very solid Isaac Chalemba in a fight in which Vlasov had Chalemba down twice, six years ago against Zerdo Ramirez in a close 10-rounder, and in 2018 against Krzysztof Glavatsky at cruiserweight, which was not the best weight for Vlasov. Since then, Vlasov avenged the Chalemba loss. He shut out a 15-0 fighter. He's still in good form. This is a dangerous fight for Joe Smith. This fight is for a vacant alphabet belt. I have zero interest in looking into potential mandatory obligations for the winner. Uh, but as I've said before, if Smith wins, I want to see him against Artur Beterbiev. That's a oh banger's delight there. Uh, and, and, you know, they've both been showcased on ESPN lately. So uh, it seems makeable. But, you know, there's no guarantee that Smith uh, gets through this one on Saturday. Indeed. Okay, it is time for the Tweet of the Week. Uh, and... Having not known about Herring and Frampton's wives tweeting to each other, it's it's possible that they would have earned it. I didn't know about that. So um, I'll note that uh, the tweet of the week is not going to be a lame April Fool's joke tweet. Uh, I'm looking at you, Chris Eubank Jr., announcing you're retiring from boxing to be a full-time poker player. Now, uh, look, tweet of the week, this is not entirely a meritocracy. It's partially about who you know. If you're a friend of the show, you have a better shot at getting the Tweet of the Week honor. A month or so ago, we gave it to Rafe Bartholomew. This week, it goes to Rafe's longtime podcast partner in crime, our good friend Brian Campbell. And this will lead nicely into the news segment that we have coming up next, because it was Brian reacting to one of this week's notable news items. On Tuesday morning, TMZ tweeted out a link to an article with the headline, Anderson Silva agrees to boxing match against Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. And Brian did a, quote, retweet with a gif that if you know what it is, it's perfect. And if you don't, you're probably lost. Uh, It's a gif of the lunch lady from the classic film, Billy Madison, 
dishing out sloppy joes. And while the gift doesn't spell out what she's saying, the Billy Madison heads know exactly what she's saying there. The line is, have some more sloppy joe. I know you kids like them extra sloppy. Um, BC loves that line. He loves talking about sloppy fights and sloppy Super Bowls. And boy, is this ever extra sloppy. Chavez Jr. versus a 45-year-old MMA fighter. Uh, So, Kieran, your thoughts on that quote-unquote fight? Uh, on Brian's tweet, or perhaps most importantly, your ranking of Billy Madison among the all-time comedy cinema greats. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I mean, this all sort of, it sort of bleeds into sort of the comments I wanted to make about the news section, too, actually. Um, BC and I may differ on this <laughs> a little bit. Do we Do we really love him, Sloppy? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just don't know anymore. I, I, I don't understand any of this anymore, really. <laughs> so I know I know that I know that BC just just gets off on, on the whole ridiculousness of it all. I, I might be I might be at my limit almost here, really, with the way everything has been going rather rapidly over the last few months. And I want to talk about that a little bit more when we discuss the news. But uh, yeah, I could totally see, I can totally see Brian getting excited about this for all the quote-unquote wrong reasons. Uh, I'm, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. For the record, Kieran does not like him extra sloppy. That's that's the bottom line here. Uh, Not in this instance. Not in this instance. No, no no follow up questions on what instances you do like him extra sloppy. (laughs) We'll save save that for. I'm just leaving. I I just didn't necessarily want to be absolutist and close the door. I I actually can't even anticipate what those circumstances would be. I just don't want to necessarily rule out their existence. All right, I'll I'll cut you off and change the subject uh, before before you get into trouble. Yes, sort of. Right, exactly because. Uh, as we go into the news segment here, Chavez versus uh, Silva was one of the news items we were going to discuss this week. Uh, we don't really have to now specifically, uh, but, you know, it was actually sort of kind of in contention for the main event of the news week, which should tell you a little something about how hard it was to find a good main <laughs> event this week. In fact, it was so hard to find a main event that we decided there is no main event, uh, just an undercard, uh, just a series of walkout bouts, really. Um, so I'll run down half the undercard and let Kieran respond, and then he'll return the favor with the other half. Uh, continuing on that Chavez-Silva circus fight theme, add Roy Jones to the list of 40-something and 50-something fighters calling out comebacking Oscar De La Hoya, although Oscar says he wants to box against a big-name MMA fighter, just in case this wasn't all gross enough already. Uh, and in other retired fighter news, Miguel Cotto and Juan Manuel Marquez are now reportedly talking about staging an exhibition bout, possibly on June 12th in Miami. Couple of quick items. Promoter Lou DiBella is suing his 130-pound fighter Oshaki Foster for breach of contract for allegedly trying to get out of what Lou says is a valid contract by invoking a force majeure clause during the pandemic. And noted LA sports and entertainment executive slash agent Casey Wasserman is getting into boxing promotion as his company has acquired European promoter Team Sourland to create Wasserman Boxing. Uh, Kieran, anything you want to comment on there or, or anything you specifically don't want to comment on? I, I just, I don't understand what's going on anymore. I just, <laughs> what is happening? I mean, look, it's just, I'm, I'm at a loss. I I'm, mean, I'm, box... I'm waiting for you to scream. I feel like everyone's taking crazy pills. <laughs> I mean, look, Boxing has always been a circus act, right? And and so it's hard to feel terribly sorry for 
the sport or or whatever for if it suddenly finds itself increasingly resembling a giant clown car but that's really how it feels at the moment this sudden mm-hmm. sprouting of absurd novelty matchups and veterans and exhibitions it, it, it feels like it's sprung out of nowhere I, I guess it's partly a combination of youtube idiots making lots of money for pretending to be boxers and honestly of course mike tyson selling a shed load of pay-per-views <laughs> uh, um uh, let's Let's never mention that the Spider Silva Chavez Jr. thing again. Let's let's just not. I, Fair I enough. Just, um, as for Cotto and Marquez, made me special kind of sad. I mean, it's it's hard to begrudge them their moment, and you know, it's they 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 would do it as an exhibition. They're, you know, they they know what they have and and all of that kind of stuff. But is anyone really going to pay to see it? Um, but what's interesting to me is that, in a way, the fact that Wasserman has bought out Sauerland, which, you know, isn't super well known in the States, but it's a huge promoter in Europe. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a really big deal. I mean, it does also show that, you know, boxing is perceived to once again be an entity in which there is money to be made. Mm. Um the question to me is whether that's still through the time-honored mechanism of slowly building up boxes and developing fights or just putting on celebrity foxy boxing slash rap battle <laughs> extravaganzas. I just don't know anymore. It just feels really strange. And I don't know if we will look back at this as just this weird era of pandemic-inspired craziness that we'll look back on and think, well, that was weird. Or... If this is the new normal now, I, 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 or is it a consequence of the sport being so siloed that fans feel they're not getting the matchups that they want? I honestly, th- it's really peculiar to be spending years s- commenting on a sport as ridiculous as boxing and still not actually have the words to describe what's happening right now. I'm, I'm honestly at a loss. I just <laughs> don't know what's going on. Well, maybe you can take some comfort in knowing that about 20 or so years ago, everyone got all excited, not everyone meaning us, but uh, the mainstream got all excited about this celebrity boxing series. We had Screech against Horshack and Refrigerator Perry against Minute Ball and Tanya Harding was fighting. But a few co as I recall. (laughs) That could be. I don't remember the specific matchup there. It sounds about right. And it was a sensation for a very brief moment and then it, it flamed out. So we can cross our fingers and hope that this will be uh, a, a brief blip on the radar. We can. Yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> um, a few other items about fights that are either announced or in the works. Uh, all of these, uh, I'm just checking the notes. Yep. All of these actually involve real fighters. Uh, it's <laughs> been more than 20 months since Manny Pacquiao has fought. A source at top rank is saying discussions are ongoing for a June 5th fight in Abu Dhabi between Pacquiao and Terence Crawford, for which I was banging the drum about six years ago and then <laughs> right. started to feel a bit guilty about banging the drum for uh, over the last couple of years. But, you know, it is a fight that continues to make a lot of sense for one of the two men involved. Uh, Two fights actually signed. Jaime Munguia will meet Machet Chulecki, one of the nicest people I ever interviewed, actually, Machet Chulecki, mm-hmm. in a middleweight bout on April 24th in El Paso with DAZN televising. 
And after winning the 2020 Fight of the Year, Jose Chon Zapata's next fight is now set. He will face Pedro Campa on May 22nd in the co-feature to the Josh Taylor-Jose Ramirez 140-pound championship fight. Uh, you get to talk about real fights. What interests you? <laughs> yes, I'm, uh, I, I set up the show very specifically to force you to talk about <laughs> the, the sloppy nonsense and I get some real fights. Um, I'm still very skeptical about Crawford Pacquiao happening. Uh, I think that's a long shot. And... Man, it feels like every hardcore fan I see on Twitter has soured on Crawford at this point. Um, Beating Pacquiao is very good for his bank account and very good for him with the casuals. But in terms of his respect quotient among the hardcores, this may as well be Floyd fighting Birdo as far as the Twitter mob is concerned. Um, Chon Zapata, love him against anybody will be watching somewhat nervously to see if he left something in the ring in the war against yeah. Baranchik. Um, and Mungia Suletsky, that's really good. I, li- I like that fight a lot. A real test for Mungia that if he passes it, he might have actually earned a fight with Canelo or Triple G after that. And by the way, that Mungia Suletsky card, it's in the U.S., but it's scheduled for a 3.30 p.m. Eastern start. That is some Raskin and Mulvaney friendly scheduling there. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we now finish the show with the top five list. Uh, Last week, I gave Kieran this topic, mostly borrowed from listener Sam Rose. The all-time top five beatings of the count or off-the-deck moments. Not really sure what is a good name for it, but it's times when boxers got knocked down hard, could have or should have been wrecked, but got up, beat the count, and to some degree fought back. So, Kieran, count them down. Um, Yeah, so... The, the couple of examples that we talked about last week as examples that didn't count because the, the guys who got knocked down, you know, didn't then go on to, to, to win or, or, or make the fight really competitive were Fernando Montiel against Nanita Donaire and Curtis Stevens against Gennady Golovkin. And so I sort of went into this looking initially for guys who basically looked like they'd been Velcroed to the canvas and were <laughs> waggling their limbs in the air and somehow managed to get up and fight. Not all of these are like that, but they are... Uh, generally, all of them, oh my God, that guy's not going to get up, but he got up, kind of a deal. Um, and there's an interest, I like to think there's a bit of a, a variation in what we've got here, but we're going to okay. begin with one of possibly one of the more obscure fights on this list, but it was the one that I referred to a little bit obliquely last week, uh, March 6th, 1999, Atlantic City. Lance Whitaker against Lou Savarese in a battle of heavyweights. Uh, Savarese. Savarese was the more experienced man. Uh, he won the bulk of the first five rounds until suddenly uh, the giant Whitaker unleashed a barrage of punches and, and dropped Savarese in the sixth. What was interesting about this was not just that Savarese looked down and quite possibly out and looked to be taking a long time to get up, but Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer and future Showtime Boxing Podcast guest Steve Smoger effectively kind of coached him through the count. Um, yeah. So he picked it up at about four, and then it was like five, six. Take your time, he said. He said to Savarese, seven, eight. All right, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> nine. And then it still seemed like there was a big pause after the nine, to be honest, before Savarese got to his uh, got to his feet. It was a little bit like Steve had, you know, had a little bit of vested interest there. But he did make it to his feet. Even so, it still seemed like it was just a matter of time. It looked, you know, Whitaker was batting him around the ring for the rest of that round. But the big man, Whitaker, threw 122 punches in that round, which is an awful lot for any big heavyweight. And that basically emptied his tank. 
and he had very little left after that. And Savarese was able to come back and secure a 10-round decision win. Well, this is going to be an interesting countdown because that didn't even cross my mind. Uh, it's, it's a great choice. I just hadn't thought about it. So I'm curious if you're going to be pulling out some other ones I didn't think of. The, the, the big thing that I do remember from that fight is exactly what you mentioned about <laughs> Smoger basically <laughs> verbally <laughs> encouraging and helping Savarese beat the count. Not, not Steve's best moment as a referee. Um, but uh, yeah, Lance Whitaker to some, Mount Whitaker to others. He'll always be goofy, goofy. ultimately. <laughs> yeah, yes. goofy to me. All right. Uh, For number four, we go back more than 60 years to December 10th, 1958, Montreal, Quebec, Archie Moore against Yvon Durrell for the light heavyweight championship. Moore was 42 years old with 203 professional bouts under his belt when he faced Durrell. And in the opening round, it looked like it. A Booming Durrell right hand sent him flat on his back. It was a huge knockdown. Moore's head bouncing off the canvas. Uh, Moore himself said afterwards, it was such a good knockdown that it knocked him down twice. Once when his head hit and then when his feet landed a fraction of a second later. Um, He looked just done. Uh, Somehow he got back up only to go down again twice more. Although the referee called one of them a slip in that opening round. Somehow he hung on. Somehow he survived the round. Somehow he survived further knockdowns before eventually turning the fight around, dropping Durrell four times and stopping him in the 11th. All right, so uh, now we're back on track with uh, fights I saw coming and uh, and kind of expected to possibly uh, land on, on this list. That was definitely one I highlighted. That I rewatched that one this week, and uh, yeah, that first knockdown was really <laughs> devastating. And then to go down a couple more times and keep getting up and the way he battled back, uh, yeah, this is an all-time classic. And, and you uh, mentioned that Moore was 42 years old at the time. We now know he was 42, but at the time, people thought he was 44 or 45 even. It seemed that much more crazy that he uh, did what he did in that fight. All right, number three on the list. One of the most famous moments in boxing history, a true sliding doors moment in many ways in the history of the sport. June 18th, 1963, Wembley, England, Henry Cooper against the man then known as Cassius Clay, the great Muhammad Ali. Cooper was a good heavyweight. He had a crack in left hook. Unfortunately, his skin was made of tissue paper. And in the third round, Ali sliced open a cut over Cooper's left eyebrow. He could have probably stepped on the gas and finished it then and there, but... He had predicted a fifth round stoppage, and so he wanted to wait, and he toyed with him, and he toyed with him for the rest of the third, and he toyed with him for most of the fourth, leaving himself open at the end of the fourth round for Enui's Amma, that aforementioned left hook. It crashed into Ali's jaw, sent him tumbling to the canvas, crashing, really, and draped over the bottom rope. Look, Ali had a hell of a jaw, but make no mistake, he was hurt. He was up at four, but the bell had rung, and he was in big, big trouble. Angelo Dundee had to come into the ring and help him back to the corner and give him smelling salts in the corner to get him together. And then, of course, there was that other factor. Um, <laughs> Ali is still groggy. Then came the famous split glove. There have been plenty of versions of what happened next. What Angelo Dundee told me many, many, many years later was that early on in the fight, he had noticed a small tear in Ali's glove and thought to himself, hmm, that could be useful. Uh, <laughs> and um, then when his man was desperately paddling his way up shit creek between rounds, he worked it and worked it and split it causing a delay while the replacement glove was procured. There was one ringside apparently and, 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 that change was made. By the time he did come out for the fifth, his head was clear, 
He went back to slicing up Cooper's eye and got that predicted fifth round stoppage. <laughs> All right. And now we're back to uh, examples that hadn't even crossed my mind, but that is certainly a good one. And yeah, the sliding doors aspect in terms of the importance of recovering from a knockdown, that one changed heavyweight history. All right, number two, I have to include. I think it's arguably the greatest fight of all time, and it's certainly the greatest fight I've ever intended. I go on about it endlessly. Uh, we <laughs> devoted a bunch of a podcast episode to discussing it recently. It is, of course, Diego Corrales, Jose Luis Castillo. Leave aside everything that happened over the previous nine rounds. It's the 10th round of this fight at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas on May 7th, 2005, that earns it a spot here. 30 seconds into the 10th round, it seemed there was only one possible winner, and it seemed as if that winner would have his hand raised very, very soon, certainly before the round was over. Sure enough, there was a winner before the round was over, but it was the guy who began the round on his back, rolling over onto his stomach, his legs sort of waving in the air as he tried to get himself up, his, his mouthpiece coming out of his mouth. The 10th round had barely started when Jose Luis Castillo landed a cracking left hook and Corrales absolutely crumbled to the canvas, rolling over on his face, right leg akimbo. Uh, it looked like it. Somehow he pulled himself up. Joe Goosen took his sweet time placing the mouthpiece back with an injunction to get inside of him. Corrales went down again, actually looking a little bit less hurt the second time and having the wherewithal to deliberately spit his mouthpiece out, whereupon Joe Goosen for ever etched his place in boxing history with the you'd really fucking better get inside of him now <laughs> and then somehow Corrales came roaring back and all of a sudden it was Castillo whose head was snapping back and it was Corrales who had won the fight. So this is interesting I had this as sort of a a fight that I thought was worthy of mention at least but it would not have made my top five because of the mouthpiece stall sort of taking gotcha. a little something out of the recovery. Uh, although I guess you could say the same for the Ali Cooper example. Um, and just neither knockdown individually seemed right. mega devastating. Like he couldn't possibly get up. So to me, this was more honorable mention than top five, but as we know, you have a particular attachment to this fight. So it's understandable. And I did consider not including it for that very reason, but it was just the sheer, the, the incredible change in momentum over the course of, you know, basically half a round that and the, the feeling ringside that that was it, that was over. But I did because when I looked at the fact that, like you said, certainly the second knockdown in and of itself didn't look particularly right. This is over. I did almost shove it to honorable mention category myself, but it but it's hard for me to leave it out, like you said. Um, and first place, though, has to go to the knockdown that launched a thousand Undertaker memes. Uh, <laughs> Yes. It has to be Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury won. December 1st, 2018, Staples Center, Los Angeles, California. A highly anticipated a heavyweight matchup that was actually a largely one-sided boxing lesson being dished out by Fury with the exception of one knockdown earlier in the fight when in the 12th, Wilder launched that, say what you want about Deontay Wilder, but the man can hit, uh, launched a furious one-two combo that had Fury flat on his back, not moving. Wilder was celebrating. It was surely all over at the last and then Fury's eyes popped open. He stood up like nothing had happened. And the fight resumed. Wilder looking absolutely stunned. The result of that fight was absurdly a draw. And of course, Wilder, Wilder is still making excuses for his drubbing in the rematch 13 months later. That has to be number one. Uh, yeah, whether it has to be number one or not, I did have jotted down here. Just simply, Fury Wilder must be on the list. I would have, <laughs> right. I would have thrown your list in the trash can if this wasn't somewhere <laughs> on it. So uh, certainly a strong choice for number one. 
Uh, lots and lots and lots of honorable mentions. I think that, you know, and I'll bet that even with all the honorable mentions, I've still missed a few that you've got, um, which I think shows that perhaps this whole thing might be a bit more common than, than you might realize at first. Um, and again, some of these honorable mentions because they're great comebacks, but the actual knockdowns themselves, as we were talking about, don't necessarily in and of themselves look look as if the, the guy couldn't get up but i've got for example gerald mcclellan nigel ben you know mcclellan was such a furious puncher and a big favor and he didn't just knock ben down he knocked him clear through the ropes but you thought well that was it but ben was fairly clear-headed when he got when he clambered back in through and of course made that a tremendous although tragic turnaround um you know if you're talking about knock through the rope scenarios um there's jack dempsey Luis firpo mm. um and that's a fight where both men actually deserve credit for picking themselves up off the floor in an absolutely crazy fight. Um, Dempsey was down first, then he put Fur Furpo down seven times in the first round. Although, of course, the situation then was a bit different. You were able to stand over your guy after you knocked him down and knock him down again before he was up. Uh, and then Furpo sending Dempsey through the ropes onto a ringside reporter's typewriter and onto the ground. He was cut on the head by the fall, but was back in the ring at the count of 14. Stopped him in the second. Uh, another fight that... Like Dempsey Firpo saw both men rally uh, from uh, near disaster on multiple occasions was, of course, George Foreman, Ron yeah. Lyle. Honestly, you can pick which <laughs> of the knockdowns by either man was the one that was remarkable that either guy got up from. Uh, Foreman, of course, eventually coming back to win in the fifth, staying with heavyweights. It kind of looked like Larry Holmes was toast when only Shavers flattened him with a right hand. It says an enormous amount about Holmes that after a couple of seconds where he looked done, he was up at four uh, and got back to his feet and won the fight. Amir Khan folded Marcus Maidana in mm -hmm. half in the first round of their fight at the Mandalay Bay. You don't often see guys get up from body shots when they're very visibly wincing in agony like Maidana was. He somehow not only shook it off, but he stayed in the fight, ended up battering Khan in the 10th round, although Amir ended up the winner. Um, Burke Cooper landed a right hand in the opening round against Michael Mora that looked as if it had Mora out cold standing up against the ropes. Mora's hands dropped, his body looked limp. And I honestly think if Cooper hadn't thrown another punch, that might have been it. But it looked as if the next punch that he landed woke Mora back up. And by round's end, uh, Cooper was the one on the deck. Um, Richie Cates dropped Matthew Saad Mohammed face first to the canvas in their light heavyweight contest in 1978. Fortunately for Mohammed, it was the very end of the round. The bell rang to save him. His corner dragged him back onto the stool and revived him in uh, the minutes break. And Mohammed went on to win in the sixth. Even though the knockdown itself wasn't absolutely uh, uh, remarkable in the sense that you didn't think he would, wouldn't get up. Anthony Joshua did look D-U-N done against Vladimir Klitschko in the sixth round of their heavyweight classic. Probably would have been done if Klitschko hadn't picked that part of the fight to stop throwing punches. Um, special shout out to a fight few will remember 10 or 20 years from now, but our guy, Xavier Martinez, deserves a bit of a mention here from coming back from two hellish knockdowns in round eight against Claudio Marrero last year to win the rest of the rounds and the fight. And an extra special shout out to perhaps the strangest of them all, Jose Rebalta and Bruce Seldon. Uh, Rebalta cracking Seldon with the first real punch he connected with in their 1991 heavyweight contest, a first round left hook that sent Seldon down dramatically face first where he lay completely immobile 
for five or six or seven long seconds until he suddenly sprang to his feet and started boxing again and ultimately won the fight. Was he completely faking with Bruce Seldon, who got knocked out by a Mike Tyson punch that didn't even hit him? Who the hell knows? So those are the ones I came up with. I'll bet there's more. Uh, there are, although you had a bunch that I didn't think of. Um, so when you alluded last week to there being one connected to a recent guest of ours, I was not thinking Whitaker, Savarese, and Steve Smoger. I thought you meant the guest was Tim Ryan and the fight was the first Ali Frazier fight when Joe landed that left hook, which not that it was the kind of punch that you don't think a guy's getting up from, but just for the beauty of the left hook Uh, and how historic the fight was and how quickly Ali somehow got up like within like one second from a perfect Joe Frazier left hook. I thought that was going to land on your list. It's certainly one of the most iconic get off the canvas moments. Um, Home shavers. uh, It was the one for me that uh, I definitely would have included in my top five Mm -hmm. that you didn't. Um, Ernie shavers lands his Sunday punch against you and you get up. Um, and and recover from it and i think that that is emblematic of why i personally rank larry holmes a little higher than lennox lewis on my all-time heavyweight champions list is that they both got drilled by big punches a couple of times in their careers and holmes was able to get up and recover when it happened to him because there's one other example that could have made the list holmes against ronaldo snipes similar situation just got drilled looked like he was done and somehow recovered. Um, You could make a case for Buster Douglas getting off the canvas against Mike Tyson. I thought about that. It's, It's a tricky one. It's not like the way he went down... It really looked like there was no possible way he could get up. It's, again, sort of like Ali Frazier. It's more the historic significance of the fact that he did get up and beat the count and come back and win the fight. Um, Foreman Lyle definitely was one I strongly considered, specifically George going face first in round four. Um, I thought you might include Marquez Pacquiao. Um, that The first two knockdowns didn't look like the fight could possibly yeah. be over. The third kind of looked like maybe it was the end. And uh, obviously Marquez getting up there completely changes history because the whole rest of the trilogy doesn't happen. Yep, I, 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 I went into this with the intention of doing so because I was ringside for that fight. And my recollection from being ringside was that especially after that third knockdown, I could have sworn Marquez looked to his corner and was like, screw this and and wasn't going to get up and it was when i the only reason i didn't and i should still have had it on the honorable mentions was when i rewatched it like you said those knockdowns with the possible exception of the third weren't quite as definitive as i had recalled them being right um but yeah there's at the very least it should be in the honorable mentions not least because as you said it's another sliding doors moment right and and just a couple more you mentioned the maidana khan body shot the other body shot that that I would have considered with, with my same bias that you have toward Corrales Castillo would be the ninth mm. round body shot in Gaddy Ward. Not that when it landed, it looked like he wasn't going to get back up, but more the fact that he just barely did. That was like a yep. 9.93 or so <laughs> yeah. count that he beat. Um, so that that's one that I might have, it wouldn't have made my top five, but honorable mention. And then the only other one I'll go semi-obscure with a fight that... W- came up recently and i can't remember exactly what list it was or what we were talking about but uh julio gonzalez and julian letterlow um, yeah, i almost did include that one yes. yeah one of the knockdowns in that fight uh letterlow dropped gonzalez in round five and like his eyes rolled back in his head and he looked like he was done and he got up and won the fight i think that was in our unanticipated classics maybe that's what it was yeah that we gave that a mention i think and again you were the one who brought that up and apparently i just 
don't like mentioning Julian Letterlow <laughs> or something. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I guess yeah. not. You have an extremely um, extreme anti Gonzalez Letterlow bias. What can we say? Something like that. But yeah, you know what was interesting to me as well was how many on my list the hard knockdowns were in the first round. Hmm. which or very early which kind of shows that i guess sometimes when that happened you can get caught cold right, right. no matter who you not all of them were of course but um but there were quite a few in there that were that were like that which which uh, i thought was actually kind of interesting yeah. but that was a really fun assignment who was it again who suggested that to you because we should give him some props again yes indeed his name is sam rose okay well done sam that was fun yeah uh, not least the thing i love about these these challenges is when it means you have an excuse to go back into youtube and rewatch some fights yes. that you haven't seen for a while and you're like <laughs> yep. i'm getting paid to do this this is great yep <laughs> all right that will do it for this week's episode of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney and thanks again to our guest nigel collins we will be back next week to recap the ennis lippinets card uh plus i will have a new top five list to assign to eric uh until then thank you for listening be safe be kind and be well What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves, demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? <laughs> Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop, make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil, the final season. Streaming May 23rd, only on Paramount Plus.